You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. As I travel around and speak about prophecy, this psalm does have some different interpretations around the place, okay? And there are questions on this psalm. So we want to try and nail it down absolutely in your mind so that you can be quite confident that Psalm 83 is actually about Armageddon and not about, uh, not about something else, as often been suggested. That's why, of course, Edom makes its appearance in Psalm 83 in verse 10. Uh, and so we'll, uh, we'll try and lead you towards that. I'm not sure 45 minutes is going to be enough, David, but we'll do our best, Okay. Let's start with Brother Thomas. This is what he has to say in Eureka. This is the Logos edition, volume 5, page 48. He's talking about Babylon and Esau being identified here. Talks about the place. They are the place which caused Babylon the great city to fall. She falls because of her wickedness in church and state and of her sanguinary and merciless oppression of the saints and witnesses of Jesus and of all the Jews and others she has slain upon the earth. And he quotes, of course, Revelation 17.6, Jeremiah, contemplating the terribleness of these latter days, says, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. Quotation out of Jeremiah 30, of course. But he shall be saved out of it, for it shall come to pass in that day, saith Yahweh Sabaoth, that I will break his yoke, that is, this is his brackets, the yoke of Esau's house from off thy neck and will burst thy bonds and strangers shall no more serve themselves of Jacob. Now, Edom is not actually mentioned or Esau is not actually mentioned by name in, in uh, Jeremiah's dream in Jeremiah chapter 30 and 31. But he's clearly there. Yahweh says in chapter 31, I will save Jacob out of the hand of him that is stronger than he. And guess what the context is? The return of Jacob from Haran back to the land of Canaan. Okay? So you know that Esau is referred to. So he's quite right in mentioning Esau's yoke. So we ask the question, who is Edom in the latter days? And some begin with a very flimsy premise. And this has misled people. In the last 40 years, it's misled people. This is their premise. This is a latter-day Christadelphian writer on the subject of Esau and Edom. First, it is taken as a conclusion requiring no proof. I like proof, by the way. <laughs> a conclusion requiring no proof that the prophecies of the last days concerning Edom are about the Arabs. Really? Since so many of the Arab tribes are descended from Esau and because ancient Edom is unquestionably Arab territory today. Well, let's make it very, very plain that there is no truth in that statement. Surely, I say, you must be kidding. There is not one Arab living today that owes his origins to Esau. You know that? Edomites were totally and utterly eradicated from the earth in AD 70. They were gone. And that's exactly what God said would happen in Obadiah. That there would not be one Edomite left. So there are no bloodline 
Edomites in the world today. That's the first point. And we'll point out that there are many Edomites in the world today, but they don't have bloodlines back to Esau. They are called Edom because of their hatred of the Jews, which was the main characteristic of Esau, who hated his brother Jacob. Esau was the first anti-Semite and becomes the type in scripture of all anti-Semites in the latter days. Okay, so there's your first clue. So when this statement is made, it is a conclusion requiring no proof that the prophecies of the last days concerning Edom are about the Arabs. It's utter nonsense. And of course we learn a lesson from this. And this is the lesson. And I've been in many arguments where this has been the case. A premise is accepted and wrong conclusions are drawn. Never accept a premise blindly without checking its truth. Because you see, if you accept a premise, then you have got to accept the conclusions. By normal logic, you can be taken down a path. It's like the clean flesh doctrine. If you accept the clean flesh doctrine assertion that Adam was created mortal, that is, he's already dying or subject to death, then you can prove the doctrine of substitution. You are locked in. You have no way of escape. All right? So you don't accept that. All right? You do not accept the premise without making sure it's true. So this is the first thing we learn. Brother Thomas had this right, of course. He understood exactly who Edom and Esau represented. He, he says this in Eureka, volume 5, <clears throat> page 50. Babylon and the goat nations... He says, Esau will have had the dominion over Jacob long enough and the time will now have arrived to prove to mankind that there is a God that judgeth in the earth. Esau has lived by his sword, but not righteously. Now listen to these words here in yellow on the screen. This is about Esau. He crucified the king of Israel. Really? Persecuted and killed his brethren. Corrupted the faith trod underfoot the holy city forty and two months and poured out the blood of Jacob like water upon the ground. But they who war against Zion and her son shall be as nothing as a thing of naught. Now you can see what he means by Esau here. This, this is the power of Rome, which over its history crushed the Jewish people, right? spilled Jewish blood throughout the centuries, they, it was the Romans who crucified Christ. Okay, so he's talking about Rome. So this is about the anti-Semitism uh, of the Romans uh, against God's people. So here we've got, in our prophecies, use of this term Edom, just like we read in Psalm 83 verse 10, we're going to read it in Ezekiel 35, we're going to read it all over. In Isaiah 34, it's there because it's about the anti-typical Edom. And the anti-typical leader relates to the political and ecclesiastical institutions of Gentile nations who oppose Christ at Armageddon and beyond. It's analogous to the Gogian Confederacy of Ezekiel 38. That's the political manifestation. Babylon the Greater Revelation 17 is the, is the ecclesiastical revelation or manifestation of Esau or Edom or the fourth beast of Daniel 7. And we know what the end of the fourth beast is, don't we? In Daniel chapter 7, we saw in verses 11 and 12 that the fourth beast is going to be utterly destroyed, abolished from the earth. Well, it was the fate of Esau and his nation. 
they were abolished from the earth in AD 70. They were completely wiped out as a people. Just as Babylon the Great is going to be completely wiped out as a people. And as we're going to see, that's not the fate of the Arabs. Okay? That's not the biblical fate of the Arabs. But it is the fate of all anti-Semites. So this is why Edom is used in that regard. Edom does not apply to the Arab nations neighbouring Israel, for they find a privileged place in the kingdom alongside of Israel. You've got prophecies like Isaiah 60, verses 6 and 7, which we might refer to a little bit later on. We've had a look at Isaiah 21, verses 13 to 15, in our workshop a little while ago, remember that? They, have a, they, they dwell in the forest in Arabia. Okay? So they're there in the kingdom, and in Psalm 72, verse 9, it uses this phraseology of those who will be in the kingdom receiving the blessings of Christ's reign. They that dwell in the wilderness. All right. Well, who's that? That's the Arab people. So whereas Esau and Edom completely abolished, just like the fourth kingdom, the fourth empire of Daniel chapter 7, this is not the case with the Arab peoples. They have a wonderful future in the kingdom of God because they will submit to the rule of Christ. So let's take a step back, shall we? Let's go back to have a look at Abraham's family tree. So Abraham first has a child through Hagar, Genesis chapter 16. Ishmael becomes the father of the Arab nations. And then, of course, through Sarah, Isaac is born, and Isaac and Rebekah have Esau and Jacob who are born at the same time, although Esau is uh, the oldest by moments. Esau, of course, produces a nation called Edom, and Jacob produces a nation called Israel. That's all pretty simple, straightforward, isn't it? Okay. The sons of Ishmael and Esau in the future look like this. So Ishmael, there he is. Now let's have a look at Isaiah 60 and verse 7. Now Isaiah 60 is about the bright future of Zion. And you read in verse 1, Arise, shine, for thy light has come, and the glory of Yahweh has risen upon thee. Okay, and then you get to verse 6 and 7, and you read this. The multitude of camels shall cover thee, the dromedaries of Midian and Ephah, all they from Sheba shall come. Sheba, of course, is in the southern Arabian peninsula. They shall bring gold and incense, and they shall show forth the praises of Yahweh. All the flocks of Kedar. Now, Kedar, of course, yeah, comes from Ishmael. All the flocks of Kedar uh, shall be gathered together unto thee. The rams of ne Nebajoth, that's another son of Ishmael. Okay. So here are the Arabs making sacrifices in the kingdom age. So it can't be from Esau because God made it very plain in Obadiah that Esau would be utterly and totally destroyed. There would be no descendants of Esau. Okay. So it's very, very plain that this this uh, assertion that Edom refers to the Arabs uh, could be, uh, it's not correct, and it can't be correct. In Isaiah 21, we uh, previously considered verse 14, Timar is mentioned there. He's another son of Ishmael, see? So uh, the Arabs will have a very bright future as next-door neighbours to Israel in the kingdom of God. What about the other side of the equation? Well, as I said, Psalm 72, verse 9, they who dwell in the wilderness. This is the other side of the equation. Because the Edomites were predominant in the awful events that led to AD 70, between AD 66 and AD 70, 
there was a huge band of some 20,000 Edomites. Now, what happened in history was that when Nebuchadnezzar came and captured Judah, the Edomites rejoiced, and they were actually in league. Should we go to the book of Obadiah briefly? Just have a look at this history of Obadiah. The Edomites rejoiced at the destruction of Judah. They were, they were beside themselves with joy uh, at, at what had happened to, uh, to Judah. And we pick this message up, if you have a look, in verse 10 of Obadiah's prophecy. We're told about the alliance that they had with the Babylonians a little earlier in this chapter uh, when we are told that, that they had... They'd made their peace uh, with Nebuchadnezzar and they had become partners with him uh, and they, they watched with great joy the destruction of Judah. So verse 10, For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them, but thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother in the day that he became a stranger, neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. And it goes on like that for some time. And then you get down to verse 15. For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the nations. Now, by all the nations meant all anti-Semitic nations, those who hate Israel, okay, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, they shall swallow down, and they shall be as though they had not been. That's their end. Total destruction. So anti-Semitic powers are doomed. And that's, this is why Edom is chosen to represent those anti-Semitic powers, because... The first anti-Semite was Esau. He wanted to kill his brother Jacob. Remember that? Jacob has to flee to Haran to get away because his mother says, if you don't get out of here, you're going to die because Esau's going to kill you. So here is a twin brother who wants to kill his brother. So he's the first anti-Semite. And so that's why God takes him and uses him in that way. Now... We're going to read also, when we come to Psalm 83 and have a look at it, we're going to find Amalek is there. Well, guess who Amalek comes from? Right, he's a descendant of Esau. Another hater of Israel. Uh, and Amalek was utterly destroyed in Mount Seir. The record, have a look at the record of 1st of Chronicles, chapter 4. Now, God tried to get Saul to finish off the Amalekites, remember? It didn't work because he kept at least one of them alive. And we know that in the days of Esther, there was an Amalekite called Haman, right, who did great damage, another Jew-hater, another anti-Semite. So what was the future that God had for Amalek? Well, it's the same as, as his forefather, Esau. So when you come to 1 Chronicles chapter 4, you read in verse 42, And some of them, even of the sons of Simeon, 500 men, went to Mount Seir, having for their captains Pelatiah and Neraiah and Rephaiah and Aziel, the sons of Ishai, and they smote 
the rest of the Amalekites that were escaped and dwelt there unto this day. So the Amalekites came to an end at this time as a nation. They were, they were simply destroyed. And of course we know that they're still around in the latter days because in Numbers 24 you've got Balaam's prophecy concerning Agag. And Agag sets himself against Christ, we read in Numbers 24. Well, Agag is rendered in the Septuagint as Gog. All right? So Agag equals Gog. And of course we know Gog's going to be there. But it's not... Gog's not a descendant of the Amalekites. The reason they're given the name Gog or Agag is because of their attitude towards God's people. They are anti-Semitic. All right? Which is why, by the way, that... Uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the opposition leader in Britain, won't become Prime Minister. You know why? He's an anti-Semite. Yeah, he's got no hope. If he becomes Prime Minister, he's not going to be there for very long. Being an anti-Semite doesn't get you very far. All right? History testifies to that. So here we've got the end of Edomites. So Esau represents anti-Semitic nations. By the way, Amalek was the first of the nations to attack Israel in the wilderness, we are told in Numbers chapter 24 and verse 20. Uh, so they showed their colours very early in the piece. Now come back with me to Genesis 36. This is just laying the foundations for what we're going to do in Isaiah. Okay? As I said, this is we've got, we've got to be quick on this, but you'll see that this is where the source of... Uh, Esau's nation is in Genesis chapter 36. Now we know from Genesis 10 that 70 is the number of the nations. We know that from Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 8 as well because it, it's a commentary uh, on, uh, on Genesis 10. It says that when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, he divided them according to the number of the children of Israel. Well, we know that Jacob had 12 sons but when he came into Egypt, he had 70. You're right, you find that record in Genesis 46, verse 27. He had 70. And 70 becomes the number of the nations. And if you count the number of the nations that came from the three sons of Noah when they came out of the ark, in Genesis chapter 10, guess how many there are? Yeah, look, check it out. There's a little bit of trick to it. There's a trick to it, but there's 70. The trick is this. When you count them, you'll count 71. That's because it says in Genesis chapter 10 that Nimrod went uh, uh, and Asher went forth to uh, Nineveh, all right? It's not a reference to, to a, a name of a man. It's actually Assyria, all right? He went out to Assyria. So that's just a little clue. People have checked me out on this, all right? And there are 70. There's something else here. The generations of Esau listed in Genesis 36, which you have in front of you, list 70 different names of the offspring of Esau, providing you exclude the names of cities, nations and women and count the male offspring only once because some of them are mentioned twice. Okay? Do the exercise one day. Again, it's a bit tricky, but you get there. There's actually 70 descendants of Esau. Why wouldn't that be the case? Because, you see, Esau becomes the type of the nations. And why is Genesis 36 slotted here where it is? Because you see, Edom became a kingdom before Israel. Alright? They became a kingdom before Israel, just like the kingdom of men 
became a kingdom before the kingdom of God. What's the next chapter in Genesis about? About Joseph. as the, This is one of the greatest types of Christ in the Bible in Genesis chapter 37 onwards, isn't it? It's just unbelievable what's there. And you see, it's all about the work of Christ in the first advent and then the second advent and so on. That's why Genesis 36 is slotted there because you see it's the kingdom of God that takes over the kingdom of men. So, Edom became the name by which God denominated all anti-Semitic nations. Obadiah verse 15 told us that. The all nations involved in the controversy of Zion are called Edom in Isaiah chapter 34 verses 1 to 6 and that's where we're going. So let's head to Isaiah 34. Brother C.C. Walker who finished off the ministry of the prophets after Brother Roberts died in 1898. The book was incomplete, incomplete, so he finished it off for him. He wrote this, introducing Isaiah chapter 34. He says, The opening of this chapter is an emphatic challenge of wide-reaching application that at once tells us that we must not limit the matter to the times of Isaiah or a century or two later nor to a few hundred square miles of territory that properly belonged to Edom in his day. Well, he's exactly right, because as we're going to see, prophecy of Isaiah 34 is actually about the overthrow of Babylon the Great. That's what it's about. Let me prove that to you. What's the timing of Isaiah 34? Well, you see, we have a series of chapters in Isaiah, beginning with chapter 30 and running through to chapter 35, which cover the entire period from Armageddon to the establishment of the kingdom. Now, I'm not going to work you through that now. It would take us too long. You go back to chapter 30, verse 27, you get reference to Armageddon. In chapter uh, um, 30, 31, you have that. Re- in 32, you've got the kingdom. In 33, you get, again, reference to Armageddon. By the time you get to the end of 33, you're actually in the destruction of Babylon the Great. When you get to 34, Armageddon is long since gone. Now, there's been some confusion on this in our community as well because there are those who interpret this as referring to the events of Armageddon or pre-Armageddon, Christ coming from Sinai into the land. Let me show you why that can't be right. In this context, all human governments have been abolished by this time. So let's read it, verse 1. Come near, ye nations, to hear and hearken, ye peoples. It's a plural word, by the way. Many peoples. Let the earth hear, and all that is therein, the world and all things that come forth of it. For the indignation of Yahweh is upon all nations, and his fury upon all their armies. Notice the tense. It's correct in the Hebrew. He hath utterly destroyed them. So there's been destruction of these nations. He hath delivered them to the slaughter, And what's the outcome? Verse 4. And all the host of heaven shall be dissolved. Now, that's very important. So verse 2 tells us the wrath of Yahweh, and this is very literal translation, is on all nations, his fury on all their army. He has devoted them. He gave them to slaughter. Past tense. We come to verse 4. Young's literal says, And consumed have been all the host of the heavens and rolled together as a book have been the heavens. Now, what does heaven represent symbolically? Governments, doesn't it? Notice it's heavens, plural, many governments. So by the time we get to verse 4, 
of this chapter, all human governments have been abolished. Right? That's the key aspect of this. They're gone. The battles are over. So we read on. Verse 5. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Behold, it shall come down upon Idjamea. Now, I have no idea why the translators of the King James Version used Idjamea. Look the word up. It's Edom. All right, so you can make that change if you haven't made it. It's Edom. My sword shall come down upon Edom and upon the people of my curse to judgment. Yep. So here is God's sword drenched in the heavens. He has put down all human governments. Verse 6. The sword of Yahweh is filled with blood. It is made fat with fatness and with the blood of lambs and of goats and the fat of the kidneys of rams. For Yahweh hath a sacrifice in Bosrah and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Now it's been thought, of course, that this is a reference to Christ and the saints coming from Sinai to make their way up to the Mount of Olives. And along the way they have a battle here in the land of Edom. Not so. All right. These names that are used here, both Bosra and Edom, are in actual fact typical names. They're actually referring to the overthrow of Babylon the Great, to the crushing of the Roman Catholic system in Europe. Now, you want proof of that, and you should want proof of that. All right? Don't accept the premise. Okay? You want proof, and I'll give you the proof. And we'll nail this down so hard you'll never get it off the ground. Okay? Because the scripture will speak for itself. I don't have to say anything. All I need to do is to show you where this, these passages are quoted in the New Testament and it's all over by the shouting. There will be a bit of shouting, but it'll be all over. All right? Because the scripture will speak for itself. So, what have we got here? The people of my curse, God. What does this mean? The people of my curse. Well, this is the word carry. It means doomed, devoted to destruction. The word is next to hormar in the Dictionary of Biblical Hebrew Words. You remember what Hormah was? In Numbers chapter 14, when they had been rejected and they had to wander for 40 years, a bunch of these idiots right, went up to try and take the land. And the Canaanites wiped them out and they drove them and destroyed them in a place called Hormah. Utter destruction. The word is used of Jericho as a devoted city. had to be utterly destroyed. It occurs in Zechariah 14 verse 11. No more Utter destruction, that's the word. It's the last word of the Old Testament in the Hebrew. Right? Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse, is the way that Malachi ends. It's used in the context of the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, 21, where things which should have been utterly destroyed is actually just one Hebrew word. Its root karam occurs seven times in 1 Samuel 15, when Saul is told to go out and utterly destroy the Amalekites. So what does God mean when he says, my sword shall be bathed in heaven and shall come down upon the people of my curse? That is the people devoted to utter destruction. Well, it's because of their anti-Semitism. So who's going to be the type of these people? Edom, all right, Esau, the first anti-Semite. That's why he's used in prophecy. That's why you find Edom in context of Armageddon. Right? That's why you find Edom in context of Babylon the Great. Okay? Because he's, he becomes a type, a vehicle, to represent all anti-Semitic nations. Now what about these two names, Edom and Bosra, that we met there in verse 6? Edom means red. 
comes from, of course, the colour of Esau's hair, the colour of his land, you know, the red land of Edom. It's identified with Adam. comes from Adam, the flesh in political and religious manifestation. Bosra can signify several things. Fortification, a sheepfold, which is sort of a fortification, and vintage. You take those two names in the appellative sense, the use of the meanings of names, <coughs> denotes the blood of the sheepfold or the blood of the vintage. And the land of Israel is to be a sheepfold for the slaughter of Gog, and thereafter Europe will become a wine press for the destruction of anti-typical Edom. So even those names, you see, they're used in this appellative sense, used as symbolic or typical names. Okay, proof time. All right. Now it goes on to say in verse 8, it is the day of Yahweh's vengeance, and this is the 40-year day, remember, and the year of recompenses for the controversy of Zion. So what that's telling us, this is wrapping up the controversy of Zion. And if there's two cities that have been butting heads for millennia, what would they be? Jerusalem and Rome. So this is about the resolution of the controversy of Zion. Then we come to verse 9. And the streams thereof... Now, you've got to stop. You must take careful note. The streams thereof. What's the thereof referred to? Anybody know? It refers to the land of Edom. So go back to verse 7. No, go back to the end of verse 6. He has a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Come to verse 7. And the unicorn shall come down with them and the bullocks with the bulls and their land. Whose land? Edom's land. Right? The land of Edom. So when you get the thereof in verse 9, it's a reference to the land of Edom. Now we're not talking here about the old land of Edom. We're talking about what this represents. And here's your proof. So let's read verses 9 and 10. And the streams thereof, that is of the land of Edom, shall be turned into pitch and the dust thereof into brimstone. And the land thereof, the land of Edom, shall become burning pitch. It, the land of Edom, shall not be quenched night nor day. The smoke thereof shall go up forever from generation to generation. It, the land of Edom, shall lie waste. None shall pass through it, the land of Edom, forever. See how this repetition of the land of Edom comes up in the record? Right. Well, it just happens to be quoted, this passage. It happens to be, there it is, Isaiah 34, 9 and 10. It just happens to be quoted in Revelation chapter 14, verses 10 and 11. All right? Accident? No. All right? This language from Isaiah 34, 9 and 10 is picked up in Revelation 14, 10 and 11. The smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. All right? You've got your fire and your brimstone. Now, that's not the only proof. But it's pretty solid proof that the Spirit is saying that the subject matter of Isaiah 34 is the same as the subject matter of Revelation 14. Can someone quote off the top of their head what verse 8 says in Revelation 14? Babylon is fallen! It's fallen! That's verse 8 of Revelation 14. What's the subject? The destruction of Babylon the Great. So it's pretty obvious, isn't it? But as I said, it's not the only proof. We're going to give you some more. Well, let's just have a bit more of a word about 
Bosra, Babylon and Rome and to see their links. They're linked etymologically. Bosra means sheepfold or fortress. Babylon was in the plain of Dura, which means a wall or a rampart or a dwelling. Rome in Hebrew, Romith, has a numerical value of 666, perfectly accidental, and means fortification. Yeah, I think you can see the links. Bosra was the capital of Edom, just as Babylon the Great, or Rome, is the capital of all nations who oppose Christ. And you see this flashing yellow line here? That's telling you I want you to go to Revelation chapter 18 and verse 2. But before you go there, all right, before you go there, have a look at verse 11 of Isaiah 34. But the cormorant and the bittern shall possess it. What's the it? The land of Edom. The owl also and the raven shall dwell in it. And he shall stretch out upon it the line of confusion and the stones of emptiness. Now, if you've got the same Bible that I've got, not only will they tell you, beside verses 9 and 10 of this chapter, that you should go and have a look at Revelation 14, they'll also tell you alongside verse 11 that you should go and have a look at Revelation chapter 18 and verse 2. So let's do that. Revelation 18, verse 2. So what's the subject? Well, it's the work of the mighty rainbowed angel in verse 1, Christ and the saints, and then we read what they're doing in verse 2. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of demons and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. Now, I've heard this passage being made reference to the, the terrible priesthood of the Catholics, you know. This is post-destruction, all right? This is after the fall of Babylon. This is when it's denuded of its, of its uh, devotees, all right? This is the time when it's gone. This is about what happens to the area they dwelt in. What happens to it? It's given to the unclean nations who have submitted to Christ's rule. And because of the events of Armageddon and because of the great earthquake which will reshape the earth in many ways, there will be peoples who don't have a homeland. All right? They will not have a homeland. But they will have submitted to Christ and they are going to be given the land of Babylon the Great, which just happens to be Europe. And if it looks anything like it does today in the future, it will probably look better not a bad place to be given as a, as, an, as a heritage or as an inheritance. So when it says here, the hold of every foul spirit in the cage of every unclean and hateful bird, the translators knew that this was coming straight out of Isaiah 34 and verse 11 onwards. Now while you're in Revelation, just go to the next page in your Bible to Revelation 19. Come to verse 17 of Revelation 19. This is what you read. <clears throat> and I saw, as it should read, one angel which had stood in the sun. That's how that should read. Now this one angel, of course, is Christ setting up his government with his saints. He had stood in the sun. The sun, of course, is symbolic of government. He's established the kingdom a long time ago. And then we read this. And he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the fowls that fly in the midst of heaven... 
come and gather yourselves together unto the supper of the great God, that ye may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of them that sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free and bond, both small and great. You've got one guess as to how many times the word flesh occurs in this context. It occurs again in verse 21, 6. And it only occurs seven times in the whole of the Apocalypse. All right? So it's very, very appropriate, isn't it? But what is this saying to us? It's saying exactly what Isaiah 34 says. So come back to Isaiah 34. We read in verse 11 of Isaiah 34 that the cormorant and the bittern and all of these unclean birds under the law, says verse 12, they shall call the nobles thereof to the kingdom, but none shall be there and all her princes shall be nothing. That is, the people who once inhabited this place are gone. And goes on to say in verse 14, And the wild beasts of the desert shall also meet with the wild beasts of the island. The satyr shall cry to his fellow, the screech owl also shall rest there. Rest there? Where? In the land of Edom. And find for herself a place of rest. There shall the great owl make her nest and lay and hatch and gather under her shadow. There shall, there shall the vulture also... These are the unclean birds, aren't they? Yeah. She'll be gathered, every one with her mate. And the language now goes back to Noah's ark, you know, the opening of the ark, or the beginning, when they went into the ark, they went in two by two. None shall want her mate, all right? Goes right back. Why? Because you see, a hundred years after the flood, there was Nimrod's rebellion. And God is reversing the work of Nimrod. You know, he's denuding the land of Babylon the Great, getting rid of the devotees of Nimrod. He's going to put in their place people who have submitted to his son. He goes on to say this in verse 16. Seek ye out the book of Yahweh and read. No one of these shall fail. None shall want her mate. For my mouth it hath commanded, and his spirit it hath gathered them. Now this word them is very important. Who's the them? The them are all these unclean birds and unclean animals, aren't they? Contextually. Has to be, doesn't it? Goes on to say this. And his hand had divided unto it. What's the it? The land of Edom. Unto them, by line, they shall possess it forever, for the age. From generation to generation, they shall dwell therein, the land of Edom. This is why when you get to chapter 35 and you read verse 1, it's not about the saints, brethren and young men. It's about these nations that have been placed in the land of Edom. They're the redeemed of Yahweh of chapter 35. We will have long since been made immortal by this time. You know, this is... This is nearly 50 years after our immortalisation that this scripture comes to pass. These unclean nations who have submitted will get their reward. Thus Edom, clearly, Edom symbolises all anti-Semitic nations led by Catholicism in the last days who will rebel against Christ's rule. Now, let me just give you some proof from the Jews themselves. Edom and Jewish tradition. The Jews understood the prophecies concerning Edom as having a double application and relating ultimately to the Gentiles. Brother C.C. Walker in the Ministry of the Prophets, page 508, quotes Jewish writers to show how they saw in the oppression they suffered from Rome the rule of Esau. That's how the Jews saw it. All right? The rule of Esau. They referred to the Roman captivity as the Yaluth Edom and saw in the miseries they suffered from AD 70 onwards an anti-typical application of the oppressions their forefathers had suffered from, 
from ancient Edom. Little wonder God can use Edom as a type of all anti-Semitic powers. So let's just review. Birds and the beasts of Isaiah 34, symbol of nations. Unclean birds and beasts because they represent the Gentiles released from Babylon, contr Babylonian control when Rome's finally destroyed. They possess the land of Ijamir or Edom for the Ad-Olam. That's what it means there. It says at the end of chapter 34, uh, they shall possess it forever. The two Hebrew words, Ad-Olam. That is the duration of the millennium. They are the them of Isaiah chapter 35, verse 1, for whom the once desolate wilderness of the land of Edom will flourish in the kingdom. When you come to Isaiah 35, the them refers to this class of nations, and then we read about their trial. They've got weak hands in verse 3, because they're mortal. Verse 10, all right, they're mortal. The ransomed of Yahweh shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. They're mortal. Fearful heart, they've known fear. Verse 5, blind, they've been ignorant. Verse 8, they have to have a highway, the way of truth given to them. There's a way of holiness spoken of in verse 8. They're converted to it. And in verse 9 we read this of Isaiah 35. No lion shall be there. Now the lion, of course, was the symbol for the Assyro-Babylonian Empire. It's now gone. All right? Babylon the Great has been destroyed. And the ransomed of Yahweh of verse 10 uh, is, of course, a reference to these people who will be there during the millennium. Uh, it's a wonderful series of chapters in Isaiah. And I've just given you a very, very quick, brief review of it because I said I had 45 minutes. Okay. Can I just do Isaiah 63 briefly? Yep. Okay, let's go to Isaiah 63. Who is this that cometh from Edom? It begins. It's preceded by chapter 62, verses 10 to 12, which is a call for Israel to prepare to receive its Messiah. All right. Then we've got this question. Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra, this that is glorious in his apparel, travelling in the greatness of his strength, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save? Well, who is it? Well, it's followed here by... Isaiah 63, verses 7 to 19, where Yahweh's mercy returns to Israel, who plead for forgiveness. So it's clearly post-Armageddon. Right? Isaiah 63, verses 1 to 6, is clearly, therefore, a reference to the events of Armageddon and beyond, but especially with reference to the destruction of Babylon the Great. The Jews have returned in ignorance of the Messiahship of Jesus, says Brother Thomas, and help us Israel. Hence it is they who inquire, who is this that cometh from Edom? Christ and the saints, of course, when they come from Sinai, will take their path. They're going to take a path that will take them through the ancient land of Edom. All right, So they come up this way. They go around through Mount Paran. They come around through the land of Edom and come in from the east to arrive at the Mount of Olives. Okay? So yes, they will come through the land. But this chapter is not about that. All right. This chapter is about the destruction of Babylon the Great. There are two stages to the deliverance of God's people. Christ will save the tents of Judah first as a result of the events of Armageddon and Elijah will perform his work that we've spoken of in the second exodus which will take 40 years. That's why you've got that long yellow second exodus of Israel there.
relatively short work for those Jews in the land that survive, a very long work for those Jews who are outside the land. Now the treading of the winepress here is, is the clue, isn't it? Because in Revelation, the treading of the winepress is all about the destruction of Babylon the Great. It's the harvest of the earth, which is about Armageddon, heap of sheaves in a valley. When you come to the winepress, which of course is late in the season, right? it comes well after the harvest of the wheat and the barley and the wheat, this is the era of the destruction of Babylon the Great in the scheme of things. So Isaiah 63 verse 3 speaks of Christ and the saints working together. See what it says there in verse 3? I have trodden the winepress alone. And by the way, this whole context, check it out, is all in the past tense. As you work down, I've made some changes in my Bible, it's all in the past tense. I've trodden the winepress alone, and the peoples, plural, there was none with me, for I trod them in mine anger, past tense, not will tread them, they've been trodden, and trampled them in my fury, and their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I did stain or have stained all my raiment. See, so this is all in the past tense. For the day of vengeance was in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. Okay, so what we have here is Christ working with his saints. Now, there are folk who say, well, this, this, is, this means Christ is doing this work all by himself. Not so. He has his saints with him. People, by the way, is plural. Rendered peoples in the RV refers to the nations. And blood of the garments is a symbol for the conquests of Christ and the saints in warfare. Many other passages will demonstrate that Christ will not be alone in his conquest of the nations. His saints will be with him. This is the same as Revelation chapter 1, isn't it? The, the, the multitudinous Christ. This is Daniel chapter 10, verse 6. The, the man of the one. A multitudinous man. You have Christ... Uh, with his saints performing this work. And I could say a bit more, but I think we should press on. I want to take you then to verses 12 and 13 of Isaiah 63. Because this is where your clue comes as to what this refers to. Verse 12. That led them, Israel, that is, by the right hand of Moses with his glorious arm, dividing the water before them to make himself an everlasting name. That led them, namely Israel, through the deep. Really? See what it says? As an horse in the wilderness. Does God ever use, prior to this, a horse to symbolise Israel? No. Ass, yes. Many, many times the ass is used as the symbol of Israel, not a horse. Why a horse here then? Well, because this is the basis of Revelation chapter 19. All right. Revelation 19, verses 11 to 15. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. You see, the horse becomes, because a horse is a war machine, isn't it? A horse is a vehicle that you use in war. So that's why Israel is likened to a horse here. And Christ will ride upon it, but he's not alone. He's got some horses behind him. This is the saints, because when you go down, of course, a bit further on uh, in Revelation chapter 19, there are the saints riding white horses behind him. Right? They're riding the white horse of Israel, so to speak. They're, that's the vehicle of divine judgment. And that judgment will be poured out, of course, over 
uh, a, a period. This is going to want to work. Here is the pattern of Roman Catholic resistance to Christ's rule for 40 years. And you see what happens. They suffer a blow at Armageddon. They rebuild their power. Psalm 2 talks about that. Rome's destroyed 10 years after Armageddon. They suffer another big blow. Then they rebuild it in Central Europe. Meanwhile, Elijah's got Israel in the wilderness of the peoples. And they are the horse, the vehicle of divine judgment against Babylon the Great. And finally, the papacy and the empire that supports him is destroyed. All right, that's Revelation uh, chapter 19, verse 20. And then Revelation 19, verse 21 is this rest of the period here where the, where the remnant have to be destroyed. And that appears it will take 10 years. Thank you for joining us. We hope you found the episode helpful. Don't forget, most of these episodes are also available as videos on our video channel, cdvideo.org. So head over and take a look. If you have any comments or questions or suggestions, please get in touch or leave us a voice message. We love to hear your feedback. You can email us at bt f at cdvideo.org If you enjoyed the episode, then please share it with others. Until next time, may God bless you in your studies and your walk towards God's kingdom. Amen.